Welcome everybody to Socratica Reads. My name is Kimberly Hatch Harrison, and I'm the co-founder of Socratica. You might know us from our YouTube channel, where we teach STEM topics like math, chemistry, biology, astronomy, computer programming. We're looking to the future when we make our videos, and that's why very often we find ourselves inspired by science fiction. Before we go on, don't you hate interruptions? There won't be any more because this podcast is free from ads. That's because it's sponsored by the Socratica Foundation. And the Socratica Foundation is sponsored by you. The Socratica Foundation is an educational nonprofit dedicated to the three timeless pillars, literacy, numeracy, and critical thinking. Socratica Reads podcast is part of our literacy campaign. You can learn more at socratica.org. This podcast came to be because I wanted to share this feeling, this idea, that all the books you read, all the ideas you come across in your life, co-mingle and stew in your head, sometimes for years, before they emerge into something new. Here's a fun example, I think, of a book that must have, at least on some level, inspired a certain movie franchise about humans colonizing a land by impersonating the blue natives. This is Call Me Joe by one of the golden era sci-fi writers, Paul Anderson. This is a short story that first appeared in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction in 1957. So you might imagine kids consuming it and the images and ideas later influencing their creations. That's what I'd like to think, anyway. Call Me Joe is about a group of scientists who are working on exploring Jupiter. They don't land. They're orbiting the planet, and they're using some kind of telepathic remote control of an artificial body that is suited for life on this hostile planet with high gravity, where you take shelter in an ice cave and breathe hydrogen and helium and drink methane. The story has a few elements of its time, and that can be a double-edged sword. I love that this is a book from the 50s, the very start of the era of molecular biology, and that was part of the zeitgeist, the concept of genetics involving actual molecules. So here, Anderson is describing creating artificial life pretty convincingly. On the other hand, in this story, there are no women, <laughs> except there's some line about how they're going to need housewives when they settle Jupiter. I don't know, that's depressing, Paul. That's a sad vision of the future with no roles for women. But the thing I love most about this story is how much this setting really does feel like a science lab, how the technology is falling apart and needs constant tinkering. The main character, Anglesey, is very believably just a jerk. No one wants to work with him but he has this special talent of creating a mental link with his artificial Jovian called Joe. I just got that. <laughs> Those of us who have been around labs know just this kind of guy. We don't like him. He throws tantrums, he's a spoiled child, but there's one thing he's good at and we don't want to risk the work, so we put up with him. What makes this story really interesting to me 
why it's so much more interesting than the modern movies we're getting on this theme that are all about conquering and pillaging an unspoiled planet is that we get to experience what it's like to transfer your consciousness and be a remote person. What is that going to do to you psychologically? At some point, are you going to lose your humanity? Or at the very least, evolve into something different? I'm going to share with you a passage when the psionics engineer arrives who will service the psychic control equipment and he meets Anglesey, so you see him through his eyes. This is a chance to re-meet the main character. It's an interesting device. Are you ready? Let's begin. Edward Anglesey was a bit of a shock the first time. He was a head, a pair of arms, and a disconcertingly intense blue stare. The rest of him was mere detail, enclosed in a wheeled machine. Biophysicist originally, Bacon had told Cornelius, studying atmospheric spores at Earth Station when he was still a young man. Accident crushed him up. Nothing below his chest will ever work again. Snappish type, you have to go slow with him. Seated on a wisp of stool in the S-projector control room, Cornelius realized that Vicken had been soft-pedaling the truth. Anglesey ate as he talked, gracelessly, letting the chair's tentacles wipe up after him. Got to, he explained. This stupid place is officially on Earth time, GMT. Jupiter isn't. I've got to be here whenever Joe wakes, ready to take him over. Couldn't you have someone spell you? asked Cornelius. Bah! Anglesey stabbed a piece of prote and waggled it at the other man. Since it was native to him, he could spit out English, the common language of the station, with unmeasured ferocity. Look here, you ever done therapeutic esping? Not just listening in or even communication, but actual pedagogic control? No, not I. It requires a certain natural talent, like yours. Cornelius smiled. His ingratiating little phrase was swallowed without being noticed by the scored face opposite him. I take it you mean cases like, oh, re-educating the nervous system of a palsied child. Yes, yes, good enough example. Has anyone ever tried to suppress the child's personality? Take him over in the most literal sense. Good God, no. Even as a scientific experiment? Anglesey grinned. Has any S-projector operative ever poured on the juice and swamped the child's brain with his own thoughts? Come on, Cornelius, I won't snitch on you. Well, it's out of my line, you understand. The psionicist looked carefully away, found a bland meter face, and screwed his eyes to that. I have, uh, heard something about. Well, yes, there were attempts made in some pathological cases to, uh, bull through. Break down the patient's delusions by sheer force. And it didn't work, said Anglesey. He laughed. It can't work, not even on a child, let alone an adult with a fully developed personality. Why, it took a decade of refinement, didn't it, before the machine was debugged to the point where a psychiatrist could even listen in without the normal variation between his pattern of thought and the patient's? Without that variation setting up an interference scrambling the very thing he wanted to study, the machine has to make automatic compensations for the differences between individuals. We still can't bridge the differences between species. If someone else is willing to cooperate, you can very gently guide his thinking. And that's all. If you try to seize control of another brain, a brain with its own background of experience, its own ego, you risk your very sanity. The other brain will fight back instinctively. 
a fully developed, matured, hardened human personality is just too complex for outside control. It has too many resources, too much hell the subconscious can call to its defense if its integrity is threatened. Blazes, man, we can't even master our own minds, let alone anyone else's. Anglesey's cracked voice tirade broke off. He sat brooding at the instrument panel, tapping the console of his mechanical mother. Well, said Cornelius after a while. He should not, perhaps, have spoken, but he found it hard to remain mute. There was too much silence, half a billion miles of it from here to the sun. If you closed your mouth five minutes at a time, the silence began creeping in like a fog. Well, jibed Anglesey, so our pseudo-Jovian, Joe, has a physically adult brain. The only reason I can control him is that his brain has never been given a chance to develop its own ego. I am Joe. From the moment he was born into consciousness, I have been there. The psi beam sends me all his sense data and sends him back my motor nerve impulses. But nevertheless, he has that excellent brain and its cells are recording every trace of experience, even as yours and mine. His synapses have assumed the topography which is my personality pattern. Anyone else, taking him over from me, would find it was like an attempt to oust me myself from my own brain. It couldn't be done. To be sure, he doubtless has only a rudimentary set of Anglesey memories. I do not, for instance, repeat trigonometric theorems while controlling him, but he has enough to be, potentially, a distinct personality. As a matter of fact, whenever he wakes from sleep, there's usually a lag of a few minutes while I sense the change through my normal psi faculties and get the amplifying helmet adjusted. I have a bit of a struggle. I feel almost a, a resistance until I've brought his mental currents completely into phase with mine. Merely dreaming has been enough of a different experience to... Anglesey didn't bother to finish the sentence. I see, murmured Cornelius. Yes, it's clear enough. In fact, it's astonishing that you can have such total contact with a being of such alien metabolism. I won't for much longer, said the S-man sarcastically, unless you can correct whatever is burning out those K-tubes. I don't have an unlimited supply of spares. I have some working hypotheses, said Cornelius, but there's so little known about psi-beam transmission. Is the velocity infinite or merely very great? Is the beam strength actually independent of distance? How about the possible effects of transmission? Oh, through the degenerate matter in the Jovian core. Good lord, a planet where water is a heavy mineral and hydrogen is a metal. What, what do we know? We're supposed to find out, snapped Anglesey. That's what this whole project is for. Knowledge. Bull. Almost he spat on the floor. Apparently what little we have learned doesn't even get through to people. Hydrogen is still a gas where Joe lives. He'd have to dig down a few miles to reach the solid phase. And I'm expected to make a scientific analysis of Jovian conditions? Cornelius waited it out, letting Anglesey storm on, while he himself turned over the problem on K-tube oscillation. They don't understand back on Earth. Even here they don't. Sometimes I think they refuse to understand. Joe's down there without much more than his bare hands. He, I, we, started with no more knowledge than that he could probably eat the local life. He has to spend nearly all his time hunting for food. It's a miracle he's come as far as he has in these few weeks, made a shelter, grown familiar with the immediate region, begun on metallurgy, hydrurgy, whatever you want to call it. What more do they want me to do for crying in the beer? Well, yes, yes, mumbled Cornelius. Yes, I... Anglesey raised his white bony face. Something filmed over in his eyes. What? began Cornelius. Shut up. 
Anglesey whipped the chair around, groped for the helmet, slapped it down over his skull. Joe's waking. Get out of here. But if you'll only let me work while he sleeps, how can I... Anglesey snarled and threw a wrench at him. It was a feeble toss, even in low G. Cornelius backed toward the door. Anglesey was tuning in the S-projector. Suddenly he jerked. Cornelius! What is it? The psionicist tried to run back, overdid it, and skidded in a heap to end up against the panel. K-tube again. Anglesey yanked off the helmet. It must have hurt like blazes, having a mental squeal build up uncontrolled and amplified in your own brain. But he said merely, change it for me, fast, and then get out and leave me alone. Joe didn't wake up of himself. Something crawled into the dugout with me. I'm in trouble down there. If you've been going to sci-fi movies and think that's what sci-fi is, I encourage you to reach back into the archives and explore some of the early examples of sci-fi writing. I think you'll find it more challenging in a good way. Science fiction, at its heart, is not about the spectacle, and that's where I think sci-fi movies have lost their way. Good science fiction makes you think, and if you enjoy thinking and discussing what you're thinking, our Discord server is open to all of our YouTube channel members and our patrons from Patreon. You can join them at patreon.com Socratica. Thanks for listening.